The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. There it is. Well, this can't be right. It's the forwarding address her mailman had for. Molly's a computer engineer. What's she doing running a flaky place like this? Technology is Killing Us by Molly Flynn. What? When did she start writing this junk? Why do I get the feeling that you and Molly aren't exactly on the friends and family program? So we've drifted apart a little. I suppose you've kept in touch with all your college friends. Well, yeah. Well, sure. I mean, that's easy when you go to Smallville U with a graduating class of 10 farmers and a cow. <laughs> Just hate losing those arguments, don't you? Oh, what is it? You hang them in the corner of your room, and they act as a spiritual air cleaner. Is that her? Just barely. I can't believe it. Excuse me. May I help you? Lois? Oh, Molly! <laughs> you look wonderful! Well, you just look so... so... not yourself. <laughs> I know. So, what do you think? Oh, it is, uh, just quite, uh... Well, you had a word for it out front. I think you said it was... Nice. Very nice. Thank you. So, Lois tells me that, uh, you used to be a computer engineer. That's right. I gave it up after working on the Hawkeye Project, the machine that can kill from space. Made me realize what a horror technology has become. Are you serious? Without technology, we'd be in the Dark Ages. Lois, it's killing us. We have got to release its death grip and free the human spirit. Jeez, I feel like I should yell, Amen. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 31st, 2011. I'm Robert Vaughn. I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today. And it's uh, going to be a hot one. We have four great topics for you today in the first half hour. We're going to be talking about Earth Hour and Fukushima fallout and the antique technology hysteria. And following that, what choices does a good person have in a repressive dictatorship? And later in the half hour, later in the hour, rather, Bob is going to be talking about the election and deja vu candidates and deja vu election or... Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah, deja vu issues. Yeah. And at the end of the hour, closing it off, we'll be talking about Diamond Aircraft here in London. Layoff, not a takeoff. Yep. But to get the ball rolling, let's just talk about Earth Hour for a bit. Because it was Earth Hour last week, and fortunately, apparently, it went virtually unnoticed by the vast majority of us, according to the... Hydro usage no, stats. No, no, it was a success, I heard, according to all the people who were promoting it. Oh, was that right? Yeah. <laughs> it was a big success, even though it was down. <laughs> yeah, well, if you figured that, maybe, I think, what was that statistics? Down by one point something percent, which could virtually be accounted for by the city itself turning off its lights, which it did Quite more possibly. or less, you know. 
So as far as you and I and the average person out there goes, it was unnoticed virtually. Like I say virtually, there were, there were some people who observed it. Um, but they do keep stats on these things, and it is quite competitive between cities and countries. Now, for Earth Hour, people were to turn off their lights and appliances and sit in the dark around candles and contemplate how technology is destroying the planet and its climate. Like I say, it's very competitive. Um, ob observers uh, from countries and cities throughout the world, with the winner this year going to Kim Jong-il's North Korea, where 24 million slaves have had over 60 years of practice at living mm -hmm. in the Dark Ages. Now, what also went unnoticed, unfortunately, was Human Achievement Hour, which, by happy coincidence, was celebrated by many around the world at the same time as Earth Hour. <laughs> is that right? It is, yeah. Same hour, 8.30 on the, uh, was it, the last Saturday in March, I think, is the uh, Earth Hour time. Was that planned as a reaction or just coincidental? Oh, what do you think? <laughs> mm, let me think. I'll, I'll, I'll investigate that. Yeah, and actually, now, I've got a note here about who actually started that. Human Achievement Hour was promoted by the so-called libertarian think tank, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, ah. to celebrate the advancement of human prosperity. Celebrants were to turn on every available light to marvel at man's creative mind and domination over a hostile planet. For this year, at least, it appears that the intellectual Luddites won over the people who enjoy their humanity by a slight margin. So the Earth, Earth Hour people probably won out a bit. Perhaps next year, with the ever-increasing popularity of Human Achievement Hour and the ever-decreasing trust in the climate change alarmist, we can light up the world every night. Now, this is what the Iron Man... And use less electricity if we want. That's a choice. That's a choice, too, yeah. yeah. You can sit in the dark all you want to, you know, that's your choice. Or you can burn those high-efficiency bulbs all night long and save all kinds of power. Yeah, didn't we do a show once on yeah. incandescent bulb yeah. banning by mm -hmm. Stephen Harper? The conservative. <laughs> now, this is what Ayn Rand Institute had to say about Earth Hour. Quote, participants spend an enjoyable 60 minutes in the dark, safe in the knowledge that their life-saving benefits of industrial civilization are just a light switch away. Forget one measly hour with just the lights off. How about Earth Month? Try spending a month shivering in the dark without heating, electricity, refrigeration, without power plants or generators without any of the labor-saving, time-saving, and therefore life-saving products that industrial energy makes possible, unquote. That about sums it up for me with this feeble hypocritical, uh, hypocritical effort to roll back the age of enlightenment to a simpler and darker age, the age of ignorance. Now, the horrific, horrific events that occurred in Japan with the earthquake and tsunami recently, which killed over 27,000 men, women, and children, costing an uh, approximate half a trillion dollars in damage and wiping entire villages off the map, has been almost overshadowed, in the media at least, by a rising hysteria surrounding the destroyed Fukushima nuclear plant. Aside from the fact that the accident has caused no deaths from radiation, and it seems that it never will, there have been anti-nuclear technology protests throughout the globe, but mainly in Europe, where a recent election was lost in Germany to yeah. the Green Party over the issue. Angela Merkel uh, went down in one particular state election. In there. one, in one uh, jurisdiction. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, now, while nobody likes to see deaths or disease resulting from a destroyed nuclear plant, any steps we take from this technology will cause 
more deaths and disease. Aside from hydroelectric power, which is very clean, as long as you don't have to flood thousands of hectares of land, such as with the Smallwood Reservoir in Labrador, the only other option to generate the kind of power a modern civilization needs is the burning of fossil fuels, mainly coal. Now, in 2004, 6,027 people died in China, according to official statistics, alone from coal mining disasters. 6,027. 28 died in the U.S. in the same year, 2004. Now, this isn't from burning coal. No, these are coal mining disasters. Coal mining disasters, yes. Okay. And related health effects due to coal. Sure. Uh, much like um, radiation killing people from nuclear plants. You know, mm-hmm. the numbers are insignificant p- compared to these 6,000 people. That's just in one year. Now, pile these bodies up along the approximate 30 people who died in the Chernobyl incident and the zero bodies who died in the Three Mile Island accident and the zero bodies so far in the Fukushima accident. The death toll without nuclear power will be intolerable, yet the Dark Age enthusiasts, the Earth Hour enthusiasts who protest nuclear power must must think that these are acceptable deaths. Now, on top of these statistics, we can add thousands of cases of black lung disease, which is contracted by coal miners every year. I mean, does that make sense to you, Bob? Get rid of nuclear, which has basically killed no one, except for one accident in the Soviet Union from a really antiquated style uh, nuclear mm-hmm. reactor, to uh, thousands of deaths every well, year when you're dealing from coal with, and fossil with, fuels. I think when you're dealing with a public that generally reasons through association these are problems you're bound to have and i think so you're saying they associate perhaps hiroshima and nagasaki with nuclear nuclear is nuclear you know boom it killed millions of people in a a war let's say right and and, actually it didn't it was just tens of thousands but but um and some people even survived the epicenter which is amazing to, to to believe but um you know, when people are guided by fear, they don't think rationally. And that's the problem with anti-technological feelings. They're generally guided by fear. And, I mean, there's always, you have to be safe around technology. you got to be safe around your car. There's a piece of technology that kills more people in any given year than any other single piece of technology Thousands every that year. I can think of, including the war overseas, including many diseases. <laughs> well, just yet, think of what you put in your no, gas tank. Nobody, gas is incredibly explosive. Excre- yes, and yet it, we it's have... One of the most volatile substances. We have substances. 16-year-olds pumping gas yeah. into their car, and yet we get along fine with that notion. This is correct, and this just shows you how, you know, once you know your technology, you don't fear it. Exactly. You know, a fan could be a very scary thing if you put your finger inside it there, you know? <laughs> yes. You can get really hurt. But the first thing a child's going to learn is keep your finger away from that fan, you know? Yep. That's why they have a cage around it, and we can leave them generally running safely in most homes. Sure. Although there's always someone who will break the rule. <laughs> Think of electricity itself yeah. that's generated by oh, all of the these power things. power in, in your wall would knock a horse down in a second. Oh, well, it would kill you. Yeah. Yeah, some of the, uh, the voltage there, I mean, it only takes about 100 volts to definitely kill you. And um, well, consider the voltage yeah, and amperage that. coming out of that plug, the 231 that goes to your stove or dryers yeah. and things like that. You're dead. Um, instant power... Surge, yeah, you'd be you'd be a goner. Yeah, so I mean, there's dangers inherent in every technology, and it's usually fear-driven ignorance that uh, causes people to protest it, driving us back even further from our uh, technological advancements. Remember, a lot of people are also associating the death and destruction that does exist in Japan with 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 the uh, nuclear 
reactor incident there. So they're equating the tsunami. Yeah, they, with they, that? they see they see the disaster, and well, the tsunami and earthquake are over. Haven't heard much talk about them lately. Yeah, we only hear about the nuclear plant. Yeah, going through that's completely out of the papers now. Yes, um, you know, didn't even last just, a week. Just looking at that that stuff on the uh, television and the internet, you know, those waves that came in washing out those people, I was just awestruck. I've been to Japan, mm-hmm. so it just strikes me a little bit more, I think, maybe than some people, because I can envision some of these beautiful villages being washed out to sea. And yet, here we are fixated on, on, a, on an accident which has killed nobody, uh, at least from the radiation. And, well, uh, that's still to be seen. I mean, that's yeah. also a long-term thing, and it's still possible some may may die. They said that the 50 workers that were working on the plant were going in on suicide missions. I'm not sure what they meant. Now, there have been people killed by explosions, but that's yeah. a separate thing from that is separate. the radiation threat. Yeah. So what what goes through the mind of these people who are, who are protesting this? I want to know. Is, that, is this what the protesters of nuclear energy want, more deaths? I think it seems so, but I think they want more. I think there's an underlying philosophy here. I don't think that the kind of ignorance fueling the anti-nuclear hysteria is isolated with that cause. It's also the same ignorance that fuels the anti-automobile movement, like you were saying, the anti-drive-through movement here in this city, the anti-incandescent light bulb. Well, this is all green you're you're talking about. Yep, the anti-plastic mobs. In effect, the anti-technology movement. And to be anti-technology is to be anti-human. Anti-man as a species. That's what I think. It's a it, fundamental... It, that's true. It's a, technology is what one of those things that separates us it from all other species. Yes. Exactly. It's a fundamental and defining characteristic of man to understand nature and to conquer it, to master it, to submit it to our will, to subdue it. Let me give you an example of the contrary philosophy, those of the intellectual Luddites, I'd call them. If you take off all your clothes in a brisk day in January in the middle of any Canadian forest, you'll freeze to death in minutes. And your frozen corpse will keep many bears and wolves and vermin alive for weeks. That's the end result of being anti-technology. From the very clothes on your back, to the gun to keep the animals at bay, to that gas-guzzling SUV in your driveway, technology, science, and discovery have made it possible for man to live. But not only live, but live comfortably anywhere on this planet. As a species, we evolved in the Rift Valley of Africa. And from there, with the slow development of technology, such as the ability to fashion clothes and light fires... We pottery. Have, pottery. That was we one have, of the earliest forms. Mm-hmm. We've migrated to the four corners of the Earth, and those who would rob us of this birthright to flourish as a species are denying their own nature as rational animals. They are nothing short of purveyors of darkness and death. And with that, I'm going to leave it there, I think, because... I think, I think there's one thing you can say, too. You know, with having said all that, one must always remember the axiom, you know, from Frank Francis Bacon that nature, to be commanded, must, must be, be obeyed. obeyed. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you can't just do what you want, you know. That's part of an objective philosophy. The, right. the existence exists regardless you of what you, you think about You can't disobey the principles of nature. And all technology obeys principles of nature. Your car would not start. It's not an unnatural creature. It's very natural. Otherwise, it wouldn't start when you turn the key. It obeys, it the, obeys laws the laws of physics. And chemistry, yes, exactly. indeed. Yeah. So we'll be um, uh, closing off that particular topic and coming back very shortly with uh, something actually, if you can believe it, a little more graver and serious. We'll be back right after this. I care about my carbon footprint, but most people out there 
making carbon snowing. You know, Earth Day was last week? No, I haven't been. Hilarious! Earth gets one day. Right, the other 364 were cranking the AC in our Hummer, and then one day a year, ooh, would separate the plastic. <laughs> you know what I think? I think that once we die out, uh, a couple hundred years, Earth is gonna have a people day. You have to remember us. One day a year, she is gonna laugh and laugh and shake our bones. Fields just outside Sidi Bouzid lies the body of 26-year-old Mohamed Bouazizi in the peace and dignity that eluded him in life. His fresh grave marked only by the Tunisian flag that drapes over it. On December 17th, Mohamed Bouazizi, a single man who had supported his widowed mother and siblings since the age of 10, took to the streets with his fresh produce cart to earn a day's wage. <laughs> At around 10 a.m. as he was making his way through the streets, the policewoman began to harass my son, so he called his uncle to help him. She left him alone only to return later to confiscate his cart. Mohammed said no. The policewoman took the fruit, but when she tried to take his scales, Mohammed refused. She slapped him and began to insult and curse his father. Mohammed, frustrated and ashamed by the public humiliation he endured at the hands of police, set himself on fire outside the local municipality building. His closest friends, anguished by Mohammed's actions, took to the streets and began a popular uprising that lasted for weeks before it toppled the 23-year-old rule of President Zain Abidine bin Ali. In one of the most foretelling moments at the peak of the Tunisian uprising, the soon-to-be-ousted president visited a badly burned Bouazizi in his hospital bed just before he died. Police delivered the body to the family for burial under tight security, afraid news of his death would only fuel the uprising even more. When we wanted to bury him, we wanted to carry his body in front of the municipal building where he burnt himself. The police wouldn't let us. They told us to take his body through a place nobody would see us. But cell phone video given to Al Jazeera by his family shows hundreds of mourners risking a police crackdown to escort the body for burial. Away from the popular uprising, his self-immolation triggered. Bouazizi was a simple and modest man. Not a single person hated him. He did not have a single fault or bad behavior. He had ambitions that he never achieved. He wanted to get married and have some money to take care of his mother and family. Outside his family home stands the produce cart from which Mohammed tried to earn a dignified living. And kilometers away, his family, friends and strangers now come to visit the man whose death, they pray, has given birth to a nation's freedom. Ayman Mohideen Al Jazeera, Sidi Bouzid. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call us at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in on the conversation. You can also check us out on the internet at uh, justrightmedia.org. We have an archive there of all of the shows from... Uh, going back to 2004, isn't it, Bob? Um, four years seven, ago, 2007. Yeah. <laughs> what year is it? I have no idea. <laughs> After 2007, 193 shows as of today. Yep. Yeah. 
Or you can send us an email at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Always glad to hear from you. Now, that was actually a, a little clip from Al Jazeera talking about a man who I don't think many people here have heard of, Mohammed Bouazizi. For the past three months, the Arab world has been undergoing a revolution, but not many know how it all began. It started in Tunisia with the overthrow of dictator Ben Ali, but what event started it all? As we just heard from that clip, a young fruit vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi killed himself out of despair, humiliation, and utter defeat at the hands of a corrupt regime. His actions and the outrage that followed have given millions of Arabs living in the dictatorship of Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, and Bahrain, the courage to rise up, throw off their chains of oppression, and reforge their societies. It's most unfortunate, I think, that the remade societies will most likely be as brutal or as, as or even more tyra tyrannical than the ones they've uh, overthrown. Yeah, a lot of people want to get even with somebody. Yeah, it's they've, they've got a long way to go, in my opinion. I mean, though I do uh, encourage the overthrow of any brutal dictatorship, I, I just don't hold out much hope for any real change. For example, the Muslim Brotherhood seems poised to take over Egypt, and it's recently been revealed that the leader of the Libyan rebels is Al-Qaeda, and that he has many Al-Qaeda warriors fighting beside him. Here we are helping him. I mean, you're throwing out one dictator and you're probably going to instill another uh, this revelation along uh, uh, this alone should be reason enough for for canada and the rest of the united nations coalition to withdraw from this conflict but uh, that doesn't seem likely i don't know do you ever get the feeling we've been played for suckers by the oh. arab world since 9 11 all the time I, I i have strong feelings that way and and i still maintain my position that 9 11 was all about an invitation for us to retaliate they wanted us there yeah, that's one that's plausible theory, I guess, yeah. yeah. The horrific end of uh, Mohamed Bouazizi, who self-immolated in front of the city hall uh, in Tunisia, and the ensuing revolts has begged the question, what choices does a good man like Bouazizi have when faced with living in a repressive, despotic country? I believe I've narrowed it down to four choices. One, he can leave the country, if possible, as millions from the Arab world have done. Many settling in the West, bringing with them, of course, the inevitable clash of cultures and ideologies which we all must deal with and overcome. Two, he can stay and fight, going underground, so to speak, much like the resistors of Vichy France did in uh, World War II. Three, he, uh, if fleeing or fighting are not an option, then a good man may find living under such circumstances unbearable and end his life as uh, Mohammed Bouazizi did. But four, you can stay and become part of the problem. You can go about your daily life chanting the slogans of the government, buying into their lies and evasions of reality, and hope that they'll leave you alone. When the tax collector comes, you pay in order to live another day. Perhaps somewhere deep in the recesses of your mind, you say to yourself, I despise these conditions, but what can I do? I'm only one person, and I have myself and my family to feed and must go along with the majority or else risk jail or death or worse. The people who stay, who don't fight, and who choose to live are slaves. They're experiencing a living death. They go about their daily routine as would lesser animals who sleep and eat and defecate and procreate and then die. 
There's no passion for living. There's no joy, no love, no happiness, no productivity, no creativity. They're forbidden these things by their masters and as a consequence have actually chosen a slower form of suicide than did Muhammad Bouazizi. Ask yourself this question. If subjected to the repressive regimes of uh, Ben Ali, uh, Hitler, or of the House of Saud, what would you do? I would suggest you come up with an answer to this question because if history has shown us anything, it's that freedom is a new and fleeting concept in history. And sooner or later, we here in the West may have to act on the answer we give to such a question. Now, a lot of movies have depicted just that kind of a question and just those kinds of answers. And one of them is Harrison Bergeron, a great little flick. Actually, I think it was produced in Canada because there's a lot of Canadian actors in mm -hmm. it. Or there's been other versions of it. But is that right? It's Sean Astin. short story. We're going to play a little clip. For, actually, it's not a little clip. It's about a six-minute clip, so sit back and enjoy it because it's very entertaining. But it stars Sean Astin. Sean Astin, you might know, is uh, from The Lord of the Rings. And that's also stars, believe it or not, Howie Mandel. You'll hear him at the, in the clip and uh, Christopher Plummer. But I have a little intro to this clip because there's a mention of removing your bands in the clip. And uh, just for anybody who has not uh, read the story or, or seen the movie, these bands are imposed on everybody in society. They're put on your head and they basically dumb you down to the lowest common denominator. So that everyone can be equal. Everybody's yeah. equal intellectually. Yeah. In other words, everybody's pretty stupid. If you take off your band, you start to think. So just give a listen to this clip and, and think of the situation that Muhammad Bouazizi was put into and, and what you might do in a similar situation. And we'll be back right after this. Uh, Mr. President, there's a young man, a young rebel, who has taken over the television master control room. I'm sorry for the interruption of your usual Sunday night viewing. And please don't try to change channels. You'll find my face on all of them. My name is Harrison Bergeron. I work at a place called the National Administration Center, where, although you don't know it, we run your lives. Bring on the lasers. I've illegally taken charge of this control room because I want to get you to overthrow your government and the whole system of forced equalization. Now... The people who came up with this system had really good intentions. They wanted to get rid of envy, which can lead to a lot of terrible things. And they did it, which is great. But what have you had to give up in return? You don't even know, do you? Well, as long as I can stay on the air, I'm going to try and show you some of the things people are capable of. What you might be capable of, too. But for you to understand what I'm going to try and show you, you're going to have to do something you've been told is wrong and evil. You're going to have to take off your band. Please, take it off. Right now. It's not evil. If it was, why would we administrators be allowed to walk around without them? Yes, that's right. We are. Take it off. I'll bet once you do, you never allow another government to make you put it on again. Now, what I want to show you is a bunch of videos and discs made before the revolution of athletes and musicians, singers and dancers and, 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 and actors and comedians. And I better warn you, you're going to envy these people. I know I do. I think you'll find 
that seeing and hearing them is worth a little envy. Now this first is a great saxophone player. You've never heard anything like it. The music is called jazz. What's happened? Uh, very little, Harrison. The broadcast. Did people take off their bands? Yes. And then they put them back on again right afterwards. Even after seeing... All those wonderful shows. Yes, I'm afraid so. Actually, you've uh, done me a great service. Over the years, I've had considerable qualms about depriving people of the joys you've just been showing them. As it turns out, I wasn't depriving them at all. Well, actually, that isn't entirely true. Some people were really moved and touched and delighted by your tapes. But only 1.3%. 1.3%? Error margin of 0.2. The general public really didn't notice any difference at all. To them, it was all just television. Well, I'm not going to take the operation. So you're just going to have to kill me. <laughs> I don't think either of those will be necessary. What do you mean? Well, the 1.3% who believed what you had to say about feelings and real love still represents over three million people who could conceivably foment civil unrest you'd be able to save them and us one hell of a lot of trouble how well you remember that orson wells radio version of the war of the worlds way back in the 1930s where he convinced half of america they were being invaded by martians well, you could go on the air again and say that what you did was the same sort of thing that it was a hoax? Well, it was a kind of play that you were just performing. Well, thank you and welcome to Chat with Charlie. Today's guest is a young man who just a few weeks ago put on one of the most amazing shows in television history. Won't you welcome, please, Harrison Bergeron. You know, Harrison, a lot of people, me included, thought that what we saw that Sunday night was real. You scared the pants off of us. Well, I'm sorry if I frightened anyone. What I did was only meant to entertain. So it was just all made up? Pretend like any other TV movie? Exactly. And you never took over a control booth? Nope. And there's no uh, secret headquarters with uh, mysterious people who run everything and get special privileges? Of course not. <laughs> and you didn't really want people to take their bands off. No way. We know what happens to people who transgress, and no performer wants to lose his audience. <laughs> but there is still one thing that does bother me. You are a great actor. Now, maybe you're acting right now. How can we be absolutely sure that this was not real? Well, because if what happened that night was real, I wouldn't be alive now. And I am alive, aren't I? <laughs> that's, that's true. I didn't, I didn't even think of that. I'd say that's proof positive. That's right, Charlie. Nothing you saw on TV that night was real. Any more than what you're about to see right now is real. No, son. George Kemmer, want to do something? God, he shot himself. What's going on here? 
This is not just a race for the mayor's office. This is an election about hope, about family. Politicians, there's the truth, and then there's what they want you to think is the truth. Figuring out the difference, that's the tricky part. Public service is my life. It gave me a reason for living after the tragic death of my wife three years ago left me to raise my daughter, Bonnie, alone. It taught me the importance of family, the pillar upon which we will build our shining city. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good speech. Heard it like a million times before. Always sounds exactly the same. Maybe he's lip syncing. <laughs> yeah, that could explain it. You must be Bonnie. You must be lost. <laughs> you seem too cool to be hanging out with these losers. Well, appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving, eh, Robert? Yes, indeed. But underneath, they're all the same. <laughs> deja vu candidates, deja vu elections. We're in the middle of a federal election in Canada. For those of you listening to the show outside the country and uh, haven't heard the news yet, <laughs> but uh, welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call 519 661 3600 to join in on the conversation if you care to do so. Uh, you know, Robert. Put family first. How often have you heard that from a politician? It has become a bromide. It, it, it does, it's even it's so meaningless, I, I don't even want to look at a guy that says that to me. Uh, our ex-premier, um, David Peterson, was in the paper talking about, big headline, put, putting family first. Free Press, March 26th. And in a second subheading on, in that same day's paper, we've learned from the same premier, David, ex-premier David Peterson, uh, that mean meanness, get that meanness, undermines democracy. That, that's the problem we're having. <laughs> oh, I think they're talking about the decorum in the House of Commons, aren't they? Um, you know, I looked all the way through the whole article to see exactly what he meant by meanness, and the only examples I could find that he was talking about was America's Tea Party and Toronto's Rob Ford. Oh, you're kidding. That's the only two references to anything in the whole article that had anything... What's he talking about? So meanness is people who would who, like a, uh, a less scaled-back government. Yes, that's all it is. You know? That's mean. Okay. And, and uh, you know, it appears that the fault behind whatever meanness is that of the press and of reality TV. That's what David Peterson said. Okay, And he says, this is a quote, The hardest thing in the information age is to convey information. <laughs> For him, yes. <laughs> people are having trouble getting through the sophisticated issues. So it ends up being symbolic issues and viciousness that dominate the discussion, end quote. Very interesting. Possibly the most intellectual thing I've ever heard from Peterson, even though it's totally wrong in some ways. Um, and, of course, I regard him as one of the chief ar architects of pretty well everything that's possibly wrong in this country today. You know, actually, what He's he just said... He's been around since the beginning. Actually, what he just said actually uh, makes sense. Like you say, uh, sometimes, for example, with the Fukushima overpowering the tsunami disaster, people are looking at the superficial rather than the... Uh, well, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Well, probably not. Um, I wish it was. Um, but it's interesting that he's not alone in his family um, philosophy. Federal Finance Minister Jim Flaherty also believes that the family is important. As he just suggested in his February 7th National Post editorial headed, time for a family-friendly tax policy. Tax the family as a unit, not as individuals, says this conservative collectivist. Uh, 
So does that mean that the family gets one vote? I've always been talking about the family being the unit. You know, this upsets me because what about single parents? What about people who don't have children? What about elderly? What about people who have had families 40, 50 years ago and now are trying to make a living? It's all a Why single out families? Well, because... That's what you do. Didn't you hear the opening clip? Oh, God, yes. I, I, I'm sorry, of it's course. It's the family. It's the family. Yeah, it feels good. Because they cannot tell you what their true philosophies are. Otherwise, you would pick up a gun and shoot them. <laughs> and that's, that's pretty much the way it is, if you really get down to the heart of it. Yeah. Because none of them are doing out there to do us any good. They're out there to raise taxes, give us monopolized services that should be all provided privately and by individuals creating their own jobs, creating their own prosperity, and it's being ripped out from our under us completely because we believe a government should be doing everything for us. Well, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, what all this family talk really means is collectivism. That's what it is. Family is a euphemism for collectivism. You're part of a group. That's how you're going to be treated. Anything but an, the individual. That's yes. what they want to say. Anything but the individual. The family is the unit of exactly. society. And, you know, the whole thing's a farce. The, the election, the, the idea that we really are talking about any real issues. I mean, we have to have the process available to us, that's for sure. I'm not saying, I'm not saying let's get rid of voting and things like that. But in the, in the environment we're in today, let's face it, the winner of this election is going to be the government and a minority of voters, and the losers will be all the taxpayers and a majority of voters. And you can see the superficiality of what's surfacing in this issue. There's so many... It, well, these are the big things that are talking about. And same, same last time. That's why I say deja vu. Uh, number one, everybody says, well, we've got to get rid of the minority government. We have a minority government, as though that's either a solution or a problem. Um, I wouldn't mind a minority government if it was consisted of three parties who were all capitalists. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So minority is not the issue. And, and these things are just so superficial. The reason we have persistent minority governments in Canada is because there's no differing issue stands between the parties. And therefore, there's no polarizing issues to help voters distinguish one party from another. Each of the parties promises better health care, more jobs, secure pensions, more money for education, sports facilities, and of course, the family, and on and on and on. Each falling over themselves to spend the taxpayers' money in order to bribe voters with promises of unearned benefits. And that's the whole process. Uh, who said it was a, an election was an advance auction in stolen goods? Was that Mark Twain or someone like him? You know, it could, could have been H.L. Uh, Mencken or someone like that. But uh, that's one of the big issues coming up. And the other one is the nasty tone of the election campaigns, like David Peterson just said. You know, and but that's again because there's no difference between the issue and the issue. To illustrate why there's no, you know, an example of how there's no mm-hmm. difference. Just recently, yesterday, I think it was or the day before, the NDP candidate in Elgin, um, Middlesex, London, drew withdrew himself from the race to encourage people to vote for the Liberal candidate. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, that that's a lesson in of itself. We've got to look at that again later. That's just yes, priceless. Indeed. What happened there? But uh, you know. So, when you can't vote on the issues, what's the voter forced to do? He has to look at the personalities and the motivations, which inevitably leads to, you know, the next superficial and totally unreal concern, which is, you know, why is this a mean election? Why is this a nasty election? Personally, I have yet to see any meanness or nastiness in this election, uh, unless they were outright libelous lies and fraudulent misrepresentation on a scale that, you know, would constitute <laughs> slander and lies. Uh, that might constitute nastiness, but... Wait a minute, of course this is a nasty election. 
But the thing is, all the nastiness is being directed at the voter and the taxpayer mm -hmm. by the politicians and the media and even the voters and taxpayers themselves. Exactly. That's where it's getting nasty. And then there's the fear of a coalition, the big fear. Everybody's, that's the card that Harper's playing. Well, Parliament is a perpetual coalition if you look at it in an objective way. And the idea of coalition is a very deceptive term. I talked about this when, uh, when it first came up. You know, you can only define a coalition in terms of political parties, right? There's no other way to say you have a coalition. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'd have so many independent bodies sitting in the House, and you wouldn't know who belonged to what party. And political parties are private associations of supposedly like-minded individuals. Party recognition in the House of Commons is not a matter of legislation, legislative requirement or consequence, but of an unwritten convention, a practice that evolved out of necessity, both in Canada immediately after Confederation and in the United States after the establishment of its own nationhood under an independently crafted constitution. Uh, by the way, the, the, the miniseries John Adams illustrated that beautifully. You know, they thought they were going to unite under one, mm -hmm. one constitution, be one united body, and within five minutes there were two houses in the, in, the, in the government and you already had bickering and arguing. You know, every time you sit in a committee, and I've been on many mm -hmm. of them, you, uh, it's, uh, it's very interesting to see human nature. People cluster together in ideological groups. Right from the beginning, they, people identify, oh, this person's with me, sure. this person's against me. That's party politics. Mm -hmm happens so, all the time. It's in human nature. So really, it's only by party affiliation that voters can easily and conveniently identify those who share a common direction in government and who therefore can be generally counted upon to support certain causes and issues and to, to oppose others. And that's how it works in convention and in practice. Now, the institution of parliament itself, though, doesn't care whether any particular MP occupying a seat in that parliament thinks in terms of green, blue, red, pink, turquoise, or as perhaps in our case, black and white. It doesn't mm -hmm. make any difference to the parliamentary system. To the institution of parliament, each seat in the House represents a legislative vote for or against any particular idea or notion raised in the House. Period. And with respect to this function, the presence or absence of political party affiliation is actually irrelevant to the outcome of each particular motion. Um, and period again on that, as, as opposed to question period. Uh, <laughs> so... To this specific process, the role of political parties is a non-essential. But, now let's step back. Let's consider the difficulty, if not impossibility, of organizing for or against a political philosophy, policy, objective, action. If you couldn't, you know, reliably know and rely on some basic level of consistency somewhere with respect to the direction you have a, you know, a particular set of ideas would lead us. So from the voter's point of view, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to identify which candidates are most aligned with his own point of view without having to go through an incredibly tedious process of learning and discovering each individual candidate's specific and usually contradictory policies on an issue-by-issue -issue basis. Mm -hmm. It would be a nightmare. Yep. You, think they hate vo you think they hate elections now? <laughs> oh, my. So... And you add to that, you know, in federal and provincial elections, it's often said the voters generally vote for the party and the leader first, and the local candidate last. Well, there's a reason for that, because of that identification. And uh, it's not for any implied disregard of the democratic process. Political parties are a natural and necessary extension of the democratic process. Uh, you know, however, another political ingredient to the democratic process is that there be at least two 
genuine alternatives to pick from, identified along some kind of political party affiliation lines. Now, this no longer exists on the federal scene as all of the parties are singing from the same philosophical policy hymn book. They're all singing the same tune. In Canada, there's no longer a political dialogue, as his historian Joe Ar Armstrong pointed out to us. What we have is a political monologue on the left, made to look like a dialogue, and here's where the party system works against us, by making it look like we've got more, cho more than one choice by having three parties to choose from, even though it's all the same thing. In this way, I think the political party system is not a good thing because it falsely leads voters to think they can actually change the direction of their government you know, if, if they wanted to, but they can't. The choice doesn't exist yet. None of those officially registered options are kind of available today to go in a different direction from what we're going in. So in objective terms, there's no reason whatsoever why the conservatives, liberals, and new democrats and the greens couldn't all unite to form a single party. A coalition of MPs dedicated to the same goals with only slightly differing means. And that would be an ideal basis for a true coalition. I think we've got one there now. It's called Parliament. Sure. Now, the bloc would not work in such a coalition. Since its objectives differ radically from the mutual goals of the other three parties, the bloc represents a nihilistic force in the Canadian Parliament, committed as it is to a separate Quebec, free of the rest of Canada, etc., under a separate jurisdiction with a separate and differing legal code. And yet everybody who's talking about this, uh, this you know, get-together are all including the bloc, you know, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of funny. So, however we look at it, this election is going to be another Canadian monologue in favor of monolith government. Uh, federally, Canadians don't even have a political debate of any meaningful sort started, let alone a political option. Um, you know, I, you remember Finance Minister Flaherty was recently warning everybody about their debt levels, eh? He warned that increasing their private debt any further would get them into serious trouble in the future and that paying debts now would, would be a big priority. Here we have a government with unprecedented debts going, <laughs> going into an election, telling the public not to, not to get into that, which tells you what, Robert, that something's going to happen in the near future with regard to interest rates, right? Mm, yes, perhaps. And that could be a reason why the election's being called now. And that has been a reason in the past. Yeah, I couldn't understand why Ignatiev you know, would call an election when the Conservatives were at their highest poll standing and he's got, got no well, alternatives. You know, it's just amazing that he would call the election. Well, speculation's running high. We could see some surprising rises in interest rates. And not surprising if government keeps spending and borrowing the way it does. And, of course, you can avoid high interest rates by doing what they did in the States, expand the credit, and then have a collapse. <laughs> so there's your choices. Exactly when and how the bubble, the government bubble will burst, I don't know. That's completely debatable. You know, Canada's looking good to the rest of the world in its economic position relative to other countries. But let's not forget that being the last lemming to hit bottom as you go over the cliff in unison isn't really something to write home about, okay? <laughs> A change in direction of government requires more than just voting against the ruling party and for the lesser of three or four evils. It will first require the existence of a political party, a group, you know, a group of like-minded people all looking in the right direction instead of the wrong one, before voters even will have an option of reversing the political course that they're, that they're embarked on. So, you know, I'm working on it. Next yeah. election, maybe. Good Take a break night right now, and we'll be back with, oh boy, again, um, the situation with um, 200 people laid off at... Um, the plant we were talking about last week. Diamond Aircraft. Diamond yeah. Aircraft, yeah. I guess they're uh, a layoff, not a takeoff. We'll be back right after this. Hi, Jim Walcott. Cutting the deficit, creating jobs. Hope I can count on your support in the upcoming election. 
Hi, I'm Jim Walcott. I'm running in the upcoming election. I hope I can count on your support. When you vote, when you go to vote, you see this name, J-I-M-W-A-L-C-O-T-T. That's me, yeah? So you go and you say, Jim Walcott, yes, check. Maybe you remember me from the news. I did the 6 o'clock news. Good evening, I'm Jim Walcott. Remember that? Well, uh, Councilman Granby. Uh, uh, Jack. Everybody calls him Jack. Part of the new breed, you know. <laughs> yeah. Fire away. Yes. Well, I, uh, I know the council will be voting next week. Oh. Oh, oh, I love being interviewed by a reporter who's bothered to check the facts. Congratulations, my boy. Uh, well, thank you very much. Now, there seems to be some concern about the new freeway going through your district. Right. Yes, well, have you made up your mind yet? I mean, are you going to vote for it? Or against it? Is that your full question? Yeah. <laughs> it's a hot potato, all right. <laughs> Will you vote for it or against it? You've got to face issues. Jack always says that. <laughs> if you were to ask me what advice I would give to a young man or a young woman starting out in politics today, I would sum it up in two words. Face issues. Now, what's your next question? Yeah, that's uh, sounds like uh, a show I heard on another radio station this week. Of somebody not wanting to face a few issues, Diamond Aircraft um, looking for a, a bailout, quite frankly, from the federal government in order to stay in business. Um, was an interesting show on uh, CJBK Radio earlier this week, where I got to hear a lot of the participants in this whole debate, the politicians, and the president of the company, who who laid some interesting facts on us. Um, you know, we've just gone into a federal election, so a quick promise is a federal aid for the Diamond Aircraft Company were not forthcoming, causing the layoff, apparently. And all this has happened within the past week. And I hate to say I told you so within five days of saying so, but my goodness, you know. Uh, you know, here's what's already happened. About $20 million was already loaned to Diamond for research and development. Actually, I heard it was $17.6 million dispersed to date. This is interesting. With conditions. The conditions are because whenever you get a loan from the government, there's conditions. They must stay in London, and they must maintain certain employment levels or be considered in default of their loan. So I don't know if this layoff will affect that in any way. They've got about $35 million tentatively committed from the provincial government. Tentative, that is, on the federal commitment of, an, of another $35 million and apparently another $20 million in, um, in private money. Now, remember the... The 20 uh, already loaned, I'm just rounding figures up, plus the 235s from, from two different levels of government, adds up to around $90 million to work in rounded figures. But that's just the taxpayer's portion of this, quote, investment. And uh, company president Peter Bauer said he didn't want to see, or Maurer rather, said he didn't want to see the issue politicized, which is amazing, asking for almost one-tenth of a billion dollars from government. And he says he doesn't want to see the issue politicized. <laughs> um, just wants to save those jobs, right? 
So you're looking at $110 million in desired loan revenues once you take into account the money they say they, they uh, raise. Now, whether that's enough to cover actual development costs is another thing, you know. And uh, they were talking about having 250 roughly firm orders at a price of $2 million each for these jets. That would be like $500 million already committed with deposits against only $110 million in loans. Sounds like a good deal on the surface, doesn't it? Well, you know, Joe Fontana, the mayor of London, said that giving the loan to Diamond is a no-brainer. Well, well you know something? That is a criteria for giving the loan. No <laughs> brain. That's exactly right. You know, and when I looked at it, I said, wow, it looks like an 80% return. Where's the lineups? Where's where the lineups getting in on this deal, right? Well, you find out, of course, that the company itself had to invest a lot of its own money from its shareholders as well. And they're talking about development costs running up near, now we're talking $250, $300 million. And I don't know if that includes the loan or, or, or doesn't. But I, the more I look at it, the more I'm going, wow, are they even going to break even? Part of the problem that they've identified is that... Uh, they suffered from the downturn in the economy, just like uh, the automotive sector did, and that they got even hit worse. So they see themselves as victims of that same uh, process, which is really interesting. But, you know, everybody's talking about these jobs. And, you know, under the I Told You So department from last week's show, remember the letter to the editor from a fellow named Jim Randall from Estevan, Saskatchewan? Um, well, he said it all. He said, all government job creation is an illusion. All, most of most of the employees or many who come to Canada from come up, come from abroad for these jobs with the company they bring their own staff you know when we have uh, companies coming in to do these things and bringing high tech and and training and expertise into our community because it doesn't exist in the local pool and sure enough out of his own mouth diamond president peter maurer told us that his company's employees around 50 were brought to london from as far away as south africa south america europe asia basically from every continent, he said, and in certainly California, we heard a few people, for the very reason of having the technical training required to do this kind of work. And they called it a brain gain for, for London rather than a brain drain. And I agree with it. That, there's a value in having that technical expertise yes, among us. Yes. Uh, the company's been in town for 17 years. I know that, uh, um, which is not really a long time when you think about it. They actually make a good product. I've flown uh, their machines myself. Oh, yeah, you're a pilot, aren't yeah. you? So uh, they're in this situation now, and the problem is the federal government, they're waiting for $35 million, which is which is contingent, by the way, for the other money that they've borrowed, uh, $55 million. So they're not getting any of this. And, uh, you know, the company president said this isn't a corporate charity or handout. It isn't a bailout. We're having a cash flow issue. We're requesting a loan. It's impossible in this economic environment and with the program we have, the two, two issues to go together, to go to a commercial lender and simply get a bank loan, as some have talked about. In this case, we need the government to be the bank. But there is a lot of benefit for Canada and for the government. So that's great. We're going to lend them this money so we can benefit our government, right? I don't know what he means by Canada. Uh, it's consistent with the government's strategic support of the aerospace industry, he says. It's a loan fully repayable, not dependent on, on the success of the program we offer our entire company as security. So it's secure. Well, of course he's going to offer the company as security. He hasn't got any choice. That's how you get a loan. <laughs> you, have to, you have to mortgage something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, pro the provincial government's supportive, and he says, well, again, I'm not politicizing this. And this is what just kills me out of all this. How can you say that? Does he really believe it's not a political issue? Well, I think you know? he means not a party political. Perhaps well, that's what he means. Uh, maybe, but that's, that, that just belies businesses 
this, you know, understanding of government. You see this this article here from the National Post by L. Gordon Krobitz. We're not buying it. It says a study that came out that says the closer business gets to government, it seems, the less people trust business. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. It's and, then, a shame. and they now see that this makes the the close connection between business and government dangerous for business. And this is the coming trend. Um, people are very, you know, because government is not on a free market. It's not out there earning money. So when you go to government, you're going to a gun to do something. You know, we had all our politicians falling over each other to hop on the same bandwagon, make sure they get the loan. Um, interesting, the conservative, what London West Ed Holder kept playing the due diligence game, didn't really want to give a clear yes or no, even to his own support of a loan for Diamond. He kept saying, well, no, I can't give you an answer. We've got to wait for due diligence. Well, if that's his motivation, wouldn't the right answer be, if I'm satisfied that due diligence shows it would be a good investment, then I'll support the loan, and if I don't, then I won't. But he wouldn't say that. Hmm. And that tells me again, it left me a feeling that there was something very insincere about what he was saying. And yet that would have left him both open and committed. He could have actually had his cake and eaten it too, <laughs> right? But, but, you know, am I not seeing something here? Yeah, it's, it's the jobs thing, you know. So anyways, bottom line on this, uh, Robert, I do agree with Diamond President Peter Maher, believe it or not, when he says he doesn't want to see this issue politicized. (laughs) (laughs) But the only way I know of to prevent the politicization of of Diamond Aircraft is to totally and unequivocally withdraw all promises of government funding to industry. You know, which uh, the problem is a lot of our companies are in trouble with or without government assistance just because of the regulations that we're burying all these companies in. It's an endless array of uh, bureaucracy taxes and more burden on, on, on productivity. And that's the unfortunate situation. That's what we're going to have more of after this election. Good enough for you, Robert? I think that'll do it, Bob. I think that'll do it. I think we've got to get out of here now today. And we hope all of you will join us again next week when we continue this journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. First I read his mind, yes. Then I read his mind, no. Then yes. Then no. (laughs) All right. You've still got the power, Tim. Well, then why couldn't I read his mind clearly? Nobody can read a politician's mind while he's deciding which side he's on. Why not? He's playing mental ping pong. Politicians won't commit themselves even to themselves. Hey, there's the angle for my story. The politician's game, mental ping pong. Now, just a minute, Tim. What's the matter? Not only did I give you a stick of dynamite to play with, but it looks as though I just lit the fuse. <laughs>